Here at PPC, we believe that every book of the Bible is inspired. It is the Word of God, and therefore it is without error, and it is the sole authority of the church, trustworthy in all that it says, helpful in all that it says, even the difficult parts like Lamentations. Lamentations is one of the more difficult parts of the Bible, but I do hope that over the last month or so that we've been in the book of Lamentations, you have been helped by it, that your satisfaction, your delight, and your faith in the Lord has grown as we have spent our time together in this book. Lamentations chapter 5, we're going to wrap things up this morning. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 1 all the way to down to verse 10. Then I'll pray and ask for the Lord's help on our time together and then work our way through this chapter. Lamentations chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers have sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness, our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts before you and we ask that you would do in us a work, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us, his church. For Lord, we are under no delusion that without you opening our eyes, we will not see. Without you opening our ears, we will not hear. And so please give us your Holy Spirit that we may do both. And then grant to us the willingness, a heart that delights in the Lord that follows him in obedience. A heart that trusts him through suffering. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have in Lamentations, and we pray that these truths would be written upon our hearts, and we would carry them the rest of our days. And God's people said, amen. I try not to watch movies with a sad ending. I generally watch movies to be entertained, or perhaps to spur on good conversation, but I am not entertained by movies that make me sad and make me cry. But sometimes I get tricked. 
So some years ago, my family tricked me into watching the film adaptation of Bridge to Terabithia. Another time, I was tricked into watching the film My Girl. I think I still have PTSD from as a child watching Charlotte's Web. <laughs> well, let's just say I get tricked a lot. So pretty much if you invite me to come and watch a movie with you, I'm going into it expecting that a child is going to die, a dog is going to die, or some motherly arachnid is going to die, and that we're both going to be sad. So I have movie-watching trust issues. Well, my own issues aside, there is a place for sad stories. So there is something good about confronting the sad reality of a life in a fallen world. Many of the greatest stories are tragedies. Lamentations is a tragedy. Lamentations doesn't have a book ending. In Lamentations chapter 5, the final chapter of this book, we sit amidst the rubble of a city ruined by invasion, kingless, templeless, confused, humbled, disgraced. Well, there is hope in the final chapter of Lamentations, but it is not a triumphant hope. It is a hope too weak to summon certainty. If you've been with us in this series, you'll know that Lamentations is a collection of five poems lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. The Lord sent the Babylonians against Jerusalem, his own people Judah, as a judgment for their prolonged unrepentant sin. And he'd been patient with Judah for many years, decades even, pleading with them to repent. Promising them mercy, but warning them through the prophets. And they ignored the word of the Lord, and the hammer fell. And great was the fall of it. Lamentations walks up the mountain of suffering, and then back down. And here we are forced to reckon with the steadfast love of the Lord. And the effects of sin on our lives and in our lives. Chapters 1 and 2 walk up the mountain, exploring the devastation and the suffering of Judah. And then chapter 3 takes us to the summit of the mountain, where we come to the literary center of the book, the central point of Lamentations, which is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And then chapter 4 begins that long and hobbled walk back down the backside of the mountain. And we learned last Lord's Day that sometimes the walk down the backside of the mountain is even more difficult than the climb up. Lamentations follows an acrostic structure, which means that Every stanza begins with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This is our suffering, A to Z. But in chapter 5, 
the poet dispenses with this form. He's come down off the mountain and now he sits at the base of the mountain and he just abandons his prose. Chapter 5 becomes staccato. The lines hit harder and faster. Shortened, you can see, to two lines per verse. I mean, what else is there to say when everything has already been said? But most instructively, Lamentations chapter 5 is a prayer. The whole thing. It is a prayer addressed to Yahweh. The one who has brought about all these things. We've learned in this book that while it was the Babylonians who held the axe, it was the Lord who brought it down. And over and over the poet tells us, it is the Lord who afflicted her. This is the Lord's doing. He used the Babylonians to do it. But it was the Lord's doing. And this is one of the things that makes lamentations so difficult. Because it is the Lord who is behind Judah's suffering. And yet it is to the Lord that Judah must pray. Lamentations forces God's people to reckon. With what seem to be conflicting realities. The Lord is completely sovereign. Infinitely wise. Perfectly good, perfectly loving. Yet the people of God suffer. So this morning, I would like to walk through just one more lament with you. And I hope that the Lord would enable all of us to see God's gentle and loving hand behind suffering. The suffering of Judah, to be sure. But if it would please him, our suffering too. At the very least, that God would be pleased to give us a model that we can pray, language that we can acquire when the Lord calls us into the day of affliction. Here's the big idea, which... uh, in some part was borrowed from Jerry Bridges' helpful book, Trust in God, it's this. That when suffering, remind your soul that God is completely sovereign, infinitely wise, and perfectly loving. And pray. When you're suffering, remind your soul that God is completely sovereign, infinitely wise, and perfectly loving, and pray to him. We're going to work through all of chapter 5, and then after we've worked through the chapter, we'll take a step back from the text and see if we can't work out God's purposes in allowing Judah to endure suffering and then seek to carry that over into our context and see if we might be able to ascertain God's purposes in our suffering. Let's go back to verse 1. The poet begins with a prayer. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. 
the Lord is called to remember. Now, this is not because God forgets. God does not forget. This is a prayer. This is a call upon God to act, see what we're going through. And beloved, if I could teach you anything about suffering and how to handle yourself in suffering, it would be to pray. Bring your complaints to God in prayer. Is there still some part of you that thinks that prayer is the least thing you can do? No, 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 no. Friend, prayer is never the least thing you can do. Prayer is the greatest thing you can do. Oswald Chambers was right when he said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Because in prayer we say, I can't. But you can. Prayer is the mark more than anything else of spiritual maturity. You will never meet a mature Christian who barely prays. They don't exist. In our circles, we tend to gauge spiritual maturity by how much you know. By how much theology you can spit. But don't be fooled. Someone could have read Augustine and Calvin and Bavink, but if they can't be bothered to turn up when the church gathers to pray, they're not as mature as they think they are. A prayerless man is a prideful man. Plain and simple. Human pride is destroyed on the anvil of suffering. And this is why at the bottom of the mountain called suffering, the poet, the author of Lamentations, prays. The Lord in his love for his people puts them into situations in which the only thing they can do is call upon the Lord. To turn to him and say, remember. See, in the law, God promised his people that if they were faithful to obey his voice and careful to do all of his commandments, that he would set them high above the nations, that he would be their God, and he would keep them secure from their enemies, and he would bless them with many children, and the land would produce for them bountifully, and the nations of the world would fear them, and they would come to to Israel, to Judah for food. And for goods, but if they didn't keep the covenant faithfully, if they didn't keep God's commandments, well, verses 2 to 10 tell us what would happen. Their homes would be turned over to strangers, verse 2. They would become orphans and widows, verse 3. They'd have to pay for their own water and their own wood, verse 4. They'd have no rest, verse 5. They'd have to serve their enemies and get bread, verse 6. God would pour out his judgment for generations of sin upon them, verse 7. They'd be ruled over by slaves, verse 8. They'd be under the constant threat of danger, verse 9. And the sun, which once warmed their faces and gave life to their crops, would now be oppressive in the heat of their famine, verse 10. 
And Judah had not kept the commandments of God. And so he lifted his hand and disaster fell upon them. And they cried to him in their suffering. They said, look, O Lord, see us in our disgrace. And their disgrace was great. Let's pick up reading verse 11. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah, princes, are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under the loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate and the young men their music. This is the disgrace of Zion. Their women raped, princes hung up by their hands in public shame. No respect being given to the elders. Young men. The Hebrew word is a man in in his prime of life when he should be out soldiering and, and making a family. Is grinding at the mill. A task which is usually reserved for the servants. Children, little boys forced to carry heavy loads of wood. Old men. No longer sitting at the city gates. No longer hanging out at McDonald's and talking about politics over coffee. Young men not starting bands in their parents' garage. This is a people under occupation, a culture that has been crushed under the boot of her enemy. And the poet complains to the Lord, look, look at this. Verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion which lies desolate. Jackals prowl over it. Lament is the only song left to sing. For joy has ceased. There is no reason to dance. The crown of verse 16 is either a reference to Judah's king who's been made childless and blind and carted off into Babylon, or it's a reference to Judah's dignity and honor and distinction as God's chosen people. For Babylon has conquered, and Judah has lost the dignity of her national sovereignty. Woe to us, the poet cries, for we have sinned. It's four words in the Hebrew. It's succinct and profoundly self-aware. Earlier he said, we're being punished for our parents' sin. But here he says, woe to us for we have sinned. So here the poet admits, the desolation of Jerusalem is because of our sin. The poet is leading Judah to Cry to the Lord for repentance. They have sinned. For years they had not acknowledged their sin. For years they continued in their sin. For years they boasted in their sin. And so the Lord uses the least severe means to wake his people from their spiritual slumber. To do whatever it would take to get them out of a house on fire before it caves in. 
And Jesus promised that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And Judah had exalted herself. And here you see her humbled. Judah's heart is sick, verse 17. Her eyes grow dim, tired of seeing the destruction of Mount Zion, of Jerusalem, the city that has been set on a hill. She is humbled now, brought down, and lo, Judah's land trampled, Judah's crops wasted, Judah's capital in ruins, Judah's king in exile, Judah's temple destroyed, Judah's hope vanished, Judah's joy faded, Judah's song muted. Behold the covenant-breaking people of God. And behold the covenant-keeping God. For now the poet comes to the turn. And we've talked about this before in the book of Lamentations. In every lament, there's a turn. Where the sufferer takes her eyes off her pain and places them on her Savior. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. Unless you've utterly rejected us. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. You... O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures. This is the turn. In Hebrew, verse 19 just starts with, You, Lord. The word but has been added there for, the, for us English speakers so that we can recognize a transition. But in the original, it's just, You, Lord. And in in the lament, that's the turn. That's where you make the turn. You, Lord, you. Friend, when you're in affliction, take hold of your soul and make it say, you, Lord, until it believes it. It's like when they put those blinders on a horse To keep the horse from seeing what's in their periphery so that they wouldn't get spooked and all they see is what's in front of you. This is what you must do in suffering. The bank account is so, Lord, but you, Lord. The prognosis said, but you, Lord. My marriage is falling apart, but you, Lord. You, Lord. When your soul keeps falling down into verse 20, keep pulling it up into verse 19. 
Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us? Pull that soul up to verse 19. You, Lord, you reign forever. This is what the poet is teaching Judah that she must do in her affliction. What is it that she must remember about her Lord? It is that you, O Lord, reign forever. God is on the throne. God is unchanged. God is unmoved. God is completely sovereign. Yes, the prognosis may be terminal. Yes, that news call may have sucked the air out of the room. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Regardless of how terrible the news, our God still sits on the throne. And that will never change. My sin runs deep, but God's mercy runs deep. Deeper. My sorrow is great, but God's grace is greater. My arms are weak, but God's arms are stronger. I don't know how I'm going to get through, but my God knows all things, and I'm going to be okay. You, O oh Lord, reign forever. In verse 21, the poet's prayer teaches Judah something foundational about sin in general, but about their sin in particular. Notice the poet says, restore us to what? To you, Lord. Restore us to yourself, O Lord. Their sin was against God, and only God could do something about it. Judah could not restore herself to God. Her God had to restore her to himself. You see, redemption is an act of God. Theologians say it's monergistic. It's not synergistic. God reaches down into the depravity of humankind and grabs hold and saves them. God must act. God must do. Restore us to yourself. Additionally, her restoration to God is the sum total of her restoration. Like the city walls could be rebuilt, a temple could be re-raised. Homes could be rebuilt. The city could be repopulated. But unless Judah is restored to God, she has not been restored at all. And there's a lesson in this for all of us. Especially if you're here and you're not a Christian. Because my unbelieving friend, you you need to know that your greatest need is not actually financial stability. Meaningful labor. Your greatest need is not good health or a happy life. Your greatest need is the same need as the Judeans. You need to be restored to God. Your preference for self-rule, your breaking of God's commandments has placed you under the judgment of God and you must be restored to Him. And there's only one way that can happen. You can't do it. God must act. And this is the good news. God already has. God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, 
who lived a life of perfect obedience to God's commandments. And God himself suffered the judgment of God for sinners like you. And when you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, when you pray as the poet did, woe to me for I have sinned, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to restore you to himself. Friend, before you leave this place, talk with someone. Tell them you'd like to become a Christian. Let us help you. Let us introduce you to Jesus Christ and a life of joy, peace, God's own righteousness. In the end, the prayer of Lamentations chapter 5 contains hope that God would restore them to himself. But notice how the poet's hope is mixed with doubt. He says, renew our days. And then verse 22, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Even for the poet in Lamentations, hope is a mixed bag. The future of his people is uncertain. The poet in the 6th century BC can't see God's full plan of redemption. Lamentations, as with the rest of the Bible, is an incredibly honest book. Every Christian I know believes that God reigns. Every Christian I know believes that God is on the throne, but good night if there isn't something in every one of us that still believes we could do better if we were on the throne. There's still a little bit of us that feels like I need to take matters into my own hands. I need to fix it myself. There's still something in us that sees affliction and thinks it's because I didn't do enough. I got to do better. I got to do more. There's something in us that just can't stomach the reality that God is completely sovereign, infinitely wise, and perfectly loving. What the poet struggled with we don't have to struggle with you see because the poet saw the shadow of his hope we see the substance of hope the hope of verse 22 was a real hope it was a right hope and that hope would be confirmed about six centuries later when God would restore his people by sending his own son. Remember, it was God who summoned Babylon against Jerusalem. It was God who did it. And it was God who sustained Babylon while the hordes leveled the city, murdered his people, destroyed his temple. It was Yahweh who allowed Judah's king to be led off in chains. It was the Lord who allowed the Babylonians to believe that they not only conquered Judah, but they also conquered him. 
You see, in those days, it was understood that the God of the conqueror was a more powerful God of the conquered. And so while the Babylonians pillaged the temple in Yahweh, they believed that they did so because their gods were more powerful than Yahweh. But little did they know that it was Yahweh who was letting all of this happen while he gave them breath and life and strength to do so. Little did they know that they were pawns in his game. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul told the Athenians? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Yes, it was God who used the Babylonians to do his bidding, to accomplish his purpose for the redemption of his people. So let's zoom out for a second. What no one in the 6th century BC could have understood was that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem was part of God's redemptive historical plan to unite all things in Christ. Of all the nations in the world, God chose a people for himself, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, for his special purpose. He delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to himself in the wilderness. And he made a covenant with them. And he told them in Exodus 19, If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God gave Israel his law. They were to live as his people. To be righteous, to be different from all the nations of the world, to be separate. They were to dress differently, live differently, eat differently, have different customs, different holidays. They were to live with God's presence among them. He gave them miraculous provision. He gave them a land to live in. He gave them rulers to rule over them and protect them. He gave them kings to lead them. He gave them prophets to speak to them. He gave them teachers to teach them. And he promised that he would protect them and he would prosper them. They were to fulfill his purpose as he would reveal himself to the nations of the world. They would come from all over the world to see the majesty of Yahweh. But Israel failed to keep the covenant. They did not keep the law. Rather than being separate from the world, they became like the world. And they abandoned the worship of the one true God and turned to the worship of demon gods of the nations. And despite God giving them centuries of second chances, giving them every benefit, giving them every handout imaginable, they still failed to keep the covenant. And so Babylon came knocking. Leaving us with the question, has God failed? Have the promises of God failed? No. Because this was God's plan all along. This was part of God's plan of redemption. That God himself would take flesh. Adding humanity to his divinity. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, would do what Israel 
failed to do. That Jesus Christ would keep the covenant that God made with Abraham, with Israel, with David. What Israel failed to do, Jesus did. The law was given to show that humanity could not do what God required. So Jesus did. And Israel's failure was laid on him. He died and rose on the third day for the justification of all who believe. This is what Paul was saying in Romans 8, 3 and 4 when he said, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The curses of law breaking are fulfilled in Christ. The blessing of law keeping is fulfilled in Christ. This is why scripture speaks so often of our union with Christ. Galatians 3 says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And Ephesians 1 says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So in Christ, Lamentations 5.21 is fulfilled. That God will restore his people to himself. Not on the basis of their law keeping and good works. But on the basis of the accomplished work of Christ. That what man could not do, Jesus did. What the law commanded, Jesus kept. Where the law said do, Jesus said done. Where the law said fix it, Jesus said it is finished. The gospel is unbelievably good news. The fully sovereign, infinitely wise, perfectly loving God has kept his covenant to his people through Christ. And that means that those who are in Christ, suffering is never retributive. It is always redemptive. It is not punishment for spiritual failure. It's preparation for spiritual blessing. So in Christ, we can pray verse 21 without the uncertainty of verse 22. The cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that God will not forget us. He will not forsake us. For Christian, God would sooner reject his own son and nullify the cross than he would forget you. If you're suffering, dear Christian, it's not because God is angry with you. God rejoices over you. So continue in your faith, brother and sister, and just know that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And lament those tribulations. Lament your afflictions. Lament your suffering and lament well. And while you lament, make the turn and 
pray to God, who is completely sovereign. He's got this in hand. Pray to God, who is infinitely wise. He knows what he's doing. And pray to God, who is perfectly loving. Because all things work together for your good. He's got this. He's got you. This movie really does have a happy ending. And that's no trick. Let's pray. Father, would you please receive our thanks and praise? And yet we must confess, Lord, that we've spent far more time being anxious than being prayerful. We spend more time thinking about our problems than praying about them. And our prayerlessness rebukes us. Lord, forgive us. And we know, thank you, Lord, that deep down we know that you are behind all things. You're completely sovereign. You're infinitely wise. You're perfectly loving. And yet, Lord, we despair when things don't go our way. We're so small sometimes. We've made you so small. We've sinned. And so, Lord, please take us out of ourselves. Give us blinders to keep us focused on you and you alone. You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. You will not forsake us. You will not forget us. You have restored us through your son, Jesus. And we praise you for this mercy and for this grace. May Jesus be big this week. Bigger than our suffering. Bigger than our sin. Bigger than our enemies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. Your assurance of pardon today comes from the text before us. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Sing one more song.